boys and girls, children of all legal drinking ages, and the gnarly gnome, which means this is Cincy Brewcast, the voice of Cincy Craft. Today is a it's a fun one. It's um, attempt number two this week to make this show happen because uh, I, I was late last time, <laughs> so we had to reschedule. But here we are. We are um, we're recording on location from uh, deep in the uh, Christian Moorline malt house, which um, I've always said that it is one of the coolest tap rooms in Cincinnati. They nailed what uh, the, I guess, the, the the theme of what Christian Moorline is all about. They, they nailed it with this tap room. So um, we're drinking some Oktoberfest beer and we're going to talk about um, German-American history in Cincinnati and how it relates to this craft beer boom that has happened. Um, Don Tolzman, welcome back to the show. You were you were on the show. We were trying to figure out as we were um, getting in to the tap room. It was probably I think it was closer to two years ago that we did that show um, here, also it, here in the in the tap room. I think it was uh, for a tapping of uh, Bach beer for a Bach beer fest. Maybe it was, it was um, I'm not, when uh, they collaborated with Meisel. Or Meisel, um, that's yeah, when it was. It was yes. Uh, um, a very loud show. It's a little calmer here tonight. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. I think that. Um, welcome back to the show. I think everybody who um, is into kind of the uh, the history side of what craft beer is and why it is what it is here in Cincinnati probably knows your name or at least knows your work. You've written. Um, how many books do you think you've written at this point about either the beer industry in Cincinnati or the German American history of the area? Well, do you, I, do, I, do I you have, know the number? <laughs> uh, it's hard to say offhand, but I have <laughs> done a lot of books on uh, the German heritage of the greater Cincinnati area and of the over the Rhine district, and then of the for the beer and brewing um, history. I've done actually this is my fourth book. I I did three books on. Three beer barons. I started out with uh, Christian Moorline, and then I did George Wiedemann, and then I did John Hauk, and then that led me to explore <laughs> the other ones because there are so many others. There's, there's a whole lot of stories <laughs> wrapped into, you know, I don't think even, you know, the, the average beer fan here in Cincinnati, you see these street names around or things like that that are these names of people that when you really start to dig into it, like, there is so much history to what was beer in Cincinnati and kind of how it turned into this. But um, it's there's a whole lot of stories there. Uh, there there's a whole lot of stories, and I think this, the you know we we haven't really even begun to scratch the surface on a lot of the history and heritage of this area. There there is just so much to explore and. One thing that I try to do in my research uh, also is I go into the German language sources because I feel many of the people who have in the past written history, they haven't been knowledgeable of the German language. And there are so many sources, uh, the German newspapers, German books, and things like that. And in my, my research on uh, writing about uh, the history of the area, just in general, I found many times especially in the English language sources, many of them are, are, are very well done, but a lot of them have mistakes and misspelling um, and a lot of the other factual information. So I like to go back to the contemporary sources, of course, with the German brewing industry that began here. A lot of the sources are in the German language. So right. I, I like to go back to them and, and see what did, what did their contemporaries have to say about them, uh, and I like to explore that. And, and a lot of the times, I, I think I'm the first person who's looked at some of these things. I'm, I'm sure. Some of these, well, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, the, the timing for it is perfect, you know, where craft beer has become what it is. People are excited about the fact that there's this, this industry happening in Cincinnati and people are starting to get curious. You see places like Christian Moorline or you walk into Rheingeist and you see that space and somebody tells you it's an old brewery and, you know, things like that you, you are there. And then when you start to kind of uncover why that exists and, and what, what it's all about, and like it, it's exciting. And it's exciting for people that maybe aren't going to – I mean, you're a bit of a history nerd, I think is a safe <laughs> way to put it. And there's, there's probably a lot of people that aren't as, as, as nerdy about it, but it gets them excited with, because they, they're into this, this side, this, this current thing. And then that kind of gets them into the history and starting to see 
what Cincinnati was, you know, pre-prohibition. And um, it, it, it's it's neat to see that, that that excitement building from people that might not have had it otherwise. Well, yeah, there are a lot of people who are excited and justifiably so in um, what's going on in brewing. But then a lot of people, too, especially at times like Bachfest, when we have uh, a heritage uh, series of lectures and programs, people are interested, too, in exploring the origins of of what's going on and the brewing renaissance. And, you know, with regard to that, too, the, the brewing renaissance, it happened here. It really came back because this is where brewing really began in the 19th century. So it makes sense that it would come back and get um, revived again. We'd have this great renaissance. I can't see this, what's been going on recently. This, is, this wouldn't happen in other parts of the company country it would happen here and uh because these this is where its roots are and uh but there's there's a lot to explore and uh it's so fascinating to when you go back and look into the to the origins of brewing and the kind of beer that was brewed here and who brewed it and and the impact that it had on the region uh, economically, socially, and culturally, it's it's just incredible uh, what it did. And one, one thing I was thinking about talking about the impact uh, just recently had to do with charity. And many of the brewers gave to charitable uh, programs and uh, benefit concerts and events and things like that. Well, you can imagine, you know, it was bad enough when Prohibition came around, but when all of these uh, beneficial agencies throughout town in our area lost the contributions from the brewers, it had a tremendous impact on on churches, uh, uh, hospitals, and all kinds of things on, in the area. On, on something- everything, on everything. Like <laughs> I don't think people realize the the effect that prohibition like, yeah it's, it 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 shut down the brewing industry and the distilling industry and that kind of stuff that's the surface of it but when you start to dig in and you talk about the charities and things like that that lost money when when prohibition hit the the industries that sprang up around it you know the the cooperages or the you know like you know all these other industries the people that were growing malt and like all of these other industries had sprung up around town around beer and around around booze and, and things like that that they were making and like it, it you know wine and whatever else was being you know well yeah it, before prohibition i think we estimate about two thousand people were uh, employed in the brewing industry but in related industries probably about ten thousand more people this had a tremendous economic impact on the region when you think about 12,000 people in brewing and, and related industries. And you mentioned Cooperage. Well, before Prohibition, there were several companies that made these wooden casks and barrels. One company, there's one company that I, that I looked into, they employed 900 people. Oh I mean, it was incredible. 900. Well, they the company went out of business because of Prohibition. And this was just one related uh, company and um, something I've been researching too of late. I worked a lot on uh, the history of Over the Rhine, but I've been working on the West End. And when you put the West End, well, you had five breweries there. Uh, the Germania, the Hauk, um, the Windisch Mühlhauser, uh, the Lachman Brewery, Foss Schneider. Five breweries in the West End. Well, it just kind of knocked the support from under that district. And as it did to over the Rhine, that it hurt the area so much. And the churches, the people who live there. And I've often, uh, and I would theorize, you know, the out-migration out of the basin area over the Rhine and the West End came, started in the 1920s and 30s. And I think... It, the reasons for that were people lost their jobs. They looked elsewhere. They, they, they had uh, they lost your, their livelihood. I mean, you're talking about two thousand people and ten thousand related. This is a you know a big uh, employment area, big econ, economic impact. Uh, well, just the, the culture of the area too. You know, you look at what what over the Rhine was then. It was this this hub for German community in Cincinnati and, and or in, in anywhere really I mean, in, in the region especially and you know 
when when you had prohibition and World War II and these these events that kind of changed the uh, um, the culture of that that community. It changed it forever. You know, it's it it never went back to what it was before that because of those events happening. And you know, yes, you know, the brewing industry has has kind of sprung back to some extent um, um, since then. But that that culture of what was here, can, it, it doesn't come back. It can't come back at, at this point. You know, it's 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 sad when you really start to look at what this was compared to. I mean. Granted, there's 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 a lot that's that's remained, and you know there's lots of people like you that that um, kind of um, wave that banner to keep it alive and to remind people of what it was. But um, it's it's sad to see that you yeah. know this was something well, really special. Well, I think you know it's important to reconnect uh, with with the roots. It, I think it's important to reconnecting with the roots because it contributes to the. Uh, brewing renaissance and revival and connecting beer to the original recipes and the people who did the brewing. But the whole area did suffer greatly. World War One, and then they had and all the things that happened then, changing street names and etc. And then right around the Over the Rhine district when they got rid of the canal and dug that up to start the subway. And that was eventually canceled, of course. But when you look at pictures of the, over the Rhine district at that time, you know, all, a lot of the streets had no signs on them because they had been changed during the war. The The canal was dug up around over the Rhine, and, and my God, it looks like uh, scenes from World War II in Germany. I mean, it was just uh, devastated. And then you had prohibition hitting the area. Uh, no wonder people were moving then up to the hilltop areas. They were moving up to Clifton Heights. They were moving up to Price Hill and other areas. And uh, thank, thankfully, we, you know, the area started to come back in the 1990s. People rep, began to recognize the historical and architectural significance. Right. What a gem we have here in, uh, in Over the Rhine. There, and people started uh, recognizing that and, and uh, making a comeback. And I know when, when I first started uh, writing about this, it was in, I think it was about 1992 or 93. It was when the Lion Brewery on Central Parkway and Liberty had been torn down. This was a magnificent example of brewery architecture. It was like a castle uh, right along the um, Central Parkway, which was the uh, canal, which of course became known as the Rhine. And uh, I wrote in the Inquirer about that, that, you know, it's time to save the buildings that we have here, especially the brewery buildings that are such, you know, great pieces of architecture uh, that were built. And uh, fortunately now, you know, so many other people have been interested in preservation. I know uh, Jim Tarbell, he did an awful lot uh, to promote over the Rhine, and there was Erich Kunzel from the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra, and many other people, you know, in over the Rhine, uh, the Chamber of Commerce here, there was Merchants on Main, and then the Bachfest started in the 1990s, and I was involved with that from the very beginning, talking about um, the brewing heritage in over the Rhine. So I think people just came to recognition that this is really a valuable thing. I think it helped lay the groundwork for the the brewing heritage uh, revival. I think people in our area, well, there's a good interest in history and heritage, and there's a a lot of thirst for beer. Well, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't know how it is in other parts of the country, but you know, when, you know, this, this time of year, along with Bachfest, but this time of year, Oktoberfest season is one of those times where you, I, I get really proud to see what, what people um, hang their hat on. You know, you go to any one of these, you know, traditional German Oktoberfest that are all around town, all these German societies, there are other Oktoberfests and they're all, so much fun and you walk there and that's this one time of year where people people are german whether they are or not everybody <laughs> wants them you know kind of like the the stereotypical uh, saint patrick's day where everybody goes out and you know pretends that they're irish but um it's a celebration of you know as much as i'm sure it happens in other cities where people have october fests but 
um, it becomes this this celebration of what Cincinnati is at a you know and and it oh. it, it just makes me really happy to see it. Well, you know that that's so true. And by the way, we have the longest series of Oktoberfest of any place in the United States. They start out in late August with the Germania Society. <laughs> And they continue into uh, the early weeks of October. So we have, have actually two months of Oktoberfest. And that supports the uh, a lot of the local beers. Of course, we have German beers here that are brought that's, here. That's way more celebrating of Oktoberfest than happens in Munich, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> that, that is quite a bit more. And, you know, you talked about celebrating Cincinnati. And I was involved, too, in, with the beginnings of Oktoberfest here. It began in 1976. And the idea of that was... Uh, to celebrate an Oktoberfest, uh, German heritage, but also to bring the whole city together in a festival that everybody, regardless of your background or whatever, we could all get together in the inner city of Cincinnati and celebrate our city and uh, and have a good time together. And because of that, that uh, the downtown Oktoberfest, many other festivals uh, became spin-offs that we have um, at the riverfront and the, um, uh, the taste of Cincinnati there was a chili fest those things they were spin-offs from the the downtown Oktoberfest so uh, we haven't been, ca- been called the city of festivals and I think that's uh, a good way to talk about our city. <laughs> we've got, uh, well, I've got, I guess it's across the river in Newport, but there's, there's a Geta festival. And <laughs> I mean, like, what other parts of the country can say that they have something like that? Like, it's just, it's so fun to see this, this, this real, like, uh, salute to what, what the city is at, at its very core and, like, people starting to see that and understand that and, and celebrate it very heartily. <laughs> and and, and Geta is, is very much part of our history and, and heritage here. People, it's kind of unique to our area and reflects the German immigration from northwest Germany. It's a uh, sausage that came from that part of Germany. And uh, it's, it's interesting sometimes when we have um, people come here from Germany, especially for the downtown Oktoberfest, they might be from uh, other parts of Germany, and they'll say, Geta, what is that? I've never heard of it. it that's not a German sausage. Well, only if you are from <laughs> that area of northwest Germany w- would you be familiar with something like that. So it does kind of relate in a, a great way to our local history and heritage. And I know some people from our area that uh, they will go to Munich for the Oktoberfest there, and they'll get up in the morning, they'll go down, they'll be at a hotel or whatever, and they'll say, you know, what do you want to have for breakfast? And they'll say, well, I'd like some geta and eggs, and they'll, the Bavarians will say, geta? What is that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have to say, well, you'll have to come to Cincinnati so and try what you're, it. what you're saying is, anybody that's listening to this that's traveling um, to Oktoberfest, bring your own geta. Can you uh, can you check geta on the plane? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know if they don't allow that, but uh, <laughs> I think you could probably do some kind of like freeze packaging kind of thing. You could do it. <laughs> um, we'll talk more. So the new book is called Cincinnati's Beer Barons in the Golden Age of, of Brewing. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. I want to kind of dive into your history a little bit. Like, how did you this this academic side of this beer history of Cincinnati or German history of Cincinnati? What what got you into that? How did you how did you I mean, you've dedicated your life to this at this point. You know, how how did that happen? Well, I, I grew up a, a, in a family where I learned German at home and always had a, a great interest in German language, history, and culture. And so when I went on to graduate studies, I, I got a Ph.D. in history and German. And then I became a director of German-American studies and a curator of the German Americana collection at the University of Cincinnati. So... While I was there for many years, over three decades, I taught courses dealing with German immigration, uh, history, and settlement in our area. And uh, one of my students uh, went on to get a Ph.D. at the University of Cincinnati. His name was Timothy Holian. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book on the history of brewing in our area, uh, which was 
very, very good book. It's, it's not out of print. It's called Over the Barrel, uh, two volumes. I managed to find both volumes in a half-price books one time and absolutely oh. just, my, just lost my shit with excitement that I found those there. <laughs> uh, They're amazing. Yeah, t- I think t- they've got them down at the library downtown if anybody uh, stops in and, and, and you know, can't find them out but to buy somewhere, obviously. It's tough to find, but yeah, they have them in the library that you can, the, you can read them. It's a and, wonderful book. That's, uh, it's two volumes. And uh, has numerous illustrations that he that he collected on the history of brewing in the area. Spent a lot of time on it, and I know if you try to buy it, uh, some of those volumes go up to a couple hundred vo- dollars right now. They're very hard. And I think I paid I think I paid thirty bucks for the one that was tougher to find. Yeah, that was which was a hell of a bargain in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> so I have, uh, you know, been you know, and then I have. Of course, I've been writing a lot of books about German immigration and history and Cincinnati's German heritage. And as part of my classes, I would take students on tours of over the Rhine, uh, the Mainstrasse village in Covington. And that led to me, uh, ultimately, I put together a book, a German heritage tour guide of uh, over the Rhine. Uh, of all the various historic sites and so on. And uh, so I, you know, have always been working in this area. And uh, actually, the the way I started getting into the beer baron thing, it happened one time when uh, my good friend Greg Hardman was in uh, Bavaria, <laughs> and he called me, and he had been visiting uh, Moorline's hometown, Truppach, in Bavaria, northern Bavaria, actually in Franconia, and was uh, telling me about that. And then when he came back to town, we we took a tour of a lot of the uh, old brewery sites and areas, especially connected with uh, Christian Moorline. And one, and you know, he encouraged me. He said, "Well, why don't you take a look at uh, Christian Moorline and and write about him?" And then. So that's how I got interested in really taking in-depth look at uh, Christian Moorline. And one thing I, you know, my um, former former student Tim Holy, he wrote a history of brewing, and so the approach that I take is kind of going to the next level of research. I, I didn't set out to write a history of a brewing company, but rather. I wanted to write a biography of the person who created a brewery, and I wanted to explore that person, their background, uh, where they came from, their training, their education, how did they uh, come here to America, where did they settle, how did they go about starting uh, their company, uh, how did, and also... It was kind of like a personality, uh, a story of their personality and of their philosophy. And I was especially interested. That's why I went go back to the German language sources. How did people talk about how did a given person treat other people? How did they talk to them? How were they, did people think about them? What, what were they like as a person? How did these things uh, provide the key to their uh, success story. And, and that's kind of a way I approached it was to explore who these people were. And also, uh, I've told other people, too, in a way, they have a story. It's not only about their, their brewery and them, but it tells how did they become so successful. In a way, they provided a model of how you can go about becoming a, a success in business or what you do in life. And that's what I thought was so incredible about the beer barons. And um, and in many of the sources, you know, we, when you read sources, they'll say, well, so-and-so was born in 1842. He came from Germany. He came here, and then he started a brewery. And that's it. I tell a lot more. I tell about what was their homeland. Where did they come from? What was their family? Did they Were they apprenticed? and brewing in uh, the old country. How did they get here? 
most of them came here with very little, a few dollars in their pocket. Well, that's what I, I love about that Christian Morline story. I mean, it, it might be, for me, like this perfect um, blueprint of what a beer baron of Cincinnati was, you know, leaving home, nothing in your pocket, getting here, just toiling away at, at literally digging ditches, you know, and, and, and then scraping together enough money to open a blacksmith shop. And then from there, you know, be getting into brewing and then building this brewery and then it turning into this, this, this huge piece of the culture of Cincinnati at the time. Like it's, it's this perfect story, this perfect kind of representation of what a lot of these people did. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's it, very different than um, even with as successful as brewing is in Cincinnati now and how, how much love there is for this industry it's very different now than it was then it was, you know, you didn't have the same uh, rags to riches kind of thing that, that, that a lot of those guys did. It's the stories are fantastic. I love them. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. You mentioned rags to riches and uh, that's, it's very true because some of these, these guys, when you mentioned digging ditches, some of them actually did do that. And uh, were they dug lager beer cellars. Some mm-hmm. of them even got sick and ill from doing that. A um, couple of them, but for example, but uh, you know they had had this uh, the the rags to riches thing. The thing kind of relates to the American dream. They did believe when they came here, they thought they could make it in America. And uh, when you look at their origins in Bavaria, especially like. Christian Morline, where he came from, from Bavaria, they had a very autocratic ruler, uh, Ludwig I. His grandson was Mad King Ludwig, so-called Mad King Ludwig, uh, who built all these castles. But uh, his grandfather, Ludwig I, was an autocratic ruler. Um, he, he levied heavy taxes on the people uh, there. Uh, it was kind of considered really... Um, a very repressive ruler. So you can understand, you know, people ask, well, why did they come here? Well, conditions were not (laughs) that great there. And and it led to revolution in 1848 in Bavaria, which deposed uh, the king there. So that's why people were coming here, because they had a hope of uh, the possibility that they could make it in the new world. And uh, there was, it was also, you know, at that time, you know, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have TV, you didn't have things that could that could paint a very um, detailed picture of what anything over here was like. You got these stories that you know this 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 land of unending opportunity and the, the roads are paved with gold and this and that. Like it, it was this beautiful idea, and you're you're there and you're dealing with all of this part of what what your country is at the time. It's this beautiful, like, land of opportunity. I think that's probably been used a lot of times, but, you know, it was the land of opportunity because it was just unending possibilities for what it could be. And, and not that it wasn't, because clearly it, it, it was for a lot of these people. It, it was, it, yeah, it was a great opportunity here for these people. And one thing about them, they were, which I noticed this about all the beer barons and for other German immigrants in other areas in our in walks of life, the, their work ethic. I mean, these guys, they were, talk about uh, round-the-clock workers. They had a, a work ethic. They believed in hard work, uh, thrift. They, they saved their money. They were thrifty. They invested, and they were persistent. They, I guess you could some say, would say hard-headed, but they stuck to what they had a goal in mind, and they worked for it. And, um, you know, when, when I go into talking about the personalities and how they worked with people, you know, and how they worked with uh, the, the, the workforces that they had, like, say, Moreline having, say, 500 people working at his brewery or Hauk having 150 people, uh, uh, they worked very well with these people. They, they, uh, you know, the, later on there were labor unions and there were labor problems with uh, uh, salary demands and so on. They got along very well with the people who worked at their breweries and they built a family uh, kind of relationship and loyalty amongst the, their staff and people who worked there. And people, people were proud of it. And as a matter of fact, 
it's so <laughs> interesting to me. I meet descendants of people, you know, their uh, grand uh, children, great grandchildren. They're proud that they, you know they can say, "Hey, I had an ancestor who worked at the Hulk Brewery or worked mm-hmm. at the Moreland." These people are proud that they worked or were connected with these people, and uh, I think that really says something about the nature of the beer barons. Um, and I kind of like that fact that they're called barons. That, that, that gives them a title, of, a royal title. <laughs> a title, it's, actually. It's, it's interesting. You know, we, when you look at what beer is now, there's, there's, there's so much that goes. When you're opening a brewery, you're, you're building this, this brand and this idea, and you're, 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 you're building this, <laughs> this thing and then making beer and then building a community around that. Whereas you, you talk about all of these you know, pre-prohibition breweries, it was the, the Christian Morgheim brewery. He was the brand. He, you know, there was no such thing as branding. And then, you know, I mean, there was, but it was him. It was this idea, this, this community that he had built or Hauk or whoever, you know, that was the, the brand of the brewery. That's what people knew. They knew them and they knew their place in the community. And it was just, it was just this very different type of experience, a different world than what we, we see now. Well, you know, one thing, when you mentioned community, I think it's an important thing. Some of the things that I explore, too, their connection to the community. Of course, I mentioned these uh, philanthropic uh, contributions to charities and so on, but they were so interconnected with the community. They all belonged to the German societies, all of them. They were connected, uh, any of of these beer barons, they belonged to the German societies, they supported the German festivals, and also another aspect about their community connection, which is not often mentioned, uh, these beer barons were faith-centered people. They took their faith uh, as something important. They all belonged to the churches and over the Rhine and in the West End, not only did they belong to them, they donated to them. They gave organs to them. They donated they the build the buildings in some cases. They, they helped. They helped build the buildings. They were on the building committees. They gave these beautiful stained glass windows. I mean, they were like pillars of support for for the community. Um, and these things are not really highlighted too often. But I mean, the churches and over the Rhine. They, They depended on a lot of these beer barons. The German societies did. The festivals did. uh, The German newspapers uh, depended on them. And uh, they they really have had a tremendous community. And one thing I also try to bring out before Prohibition, well, we had 36 breweries all together. In my previous three books, I covered three of them, uh, Moorline, Wiedemann, and Hauk, and in my current one, I cover 17 of, of people uh, beer, beer, that I think deserve to be called beer baron. I don't think every beer brewer deserves to be called a beer baron. Not all of them uh, fit the, the, the description that I've talked about, the belief in the American dream, the work ethic, the family-centered uh, company, uh, the faith-centered and the community-centered company, not all of them fit that uh, description that they're so entrenched and supportive of the community. And another thing I should say about the family-centered uh, companies, uh, they, they, it's incredible. They usually, at the very least, they had six children, some, some of them up to maybe 10, 12 kids, and all of the, the, the offspring male or female, were involved in the company. They all had a job to do in the company. It was a family company, not only father and next generation, but down to the grandchildren. They were involved with, uh, in other words, a very tightly knit uh, family operation uh, is something you'd have to say about the beer baron breweries, very tightly knit. And also, they intermarried with one another, just like royalty, which is why I think it's good to call them beer barons, because beer baron families, well, hear from locally, they they intermarry with a family in um, Columbus or St. Louis. So very uh, a, a tight-knit family, multi-generational, um, 
so not all of the beer brewers fit that definition. And um, so I go into describing to the definition of a beer baron and uh, what, you know, what, what defines them. And they're, they're an interesting uh, bunch of people. Why do you think this happened in Cincinnati? Why do you think that that that, that you know you, you talked about the, uh, um, the the German Triangle of Cincinnati, uh, Milwaukee, and St. Louis, and how there there were these very distinct like hubs of German culture at that time? Like why why did this happen here? Well, the the uh, the whole brewing uh, history and heritage of Cincinnati can't it goes back to the German immigration and. This became a center of the German settlement and immigration in the early 19th century, later on then down River St. Louis and then up, up north uh, Milwaukee. And when Germans came here, they found the only kind of beer that was available was the, the common beer, which is a British-style ale. And they found it to be very heavy, thick, and gritty, this is a top fermented beer that only takes about a week to brew. And they were used to a bottom fermented beer that was crisp, clean, and clear. A lager beer that had been aged. And I, when, when some of these um, brewers came here, they were such clever businessmen. And especially those who had studied brewing in the old country, they realized, hey, there is a market possibility here. These people do not like the British-style ale, the heavier ales. And of course... They're just drinking it because they have to. There's nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) They had to. And in the course of the 19th century, too, by by 1900, ales had completely uh, been overrun by lager beer. Nobody... I mean, ales continued to be brewed but they were completely overwhelmed by, uh, by lager beer, the German-style beer. Also, when Germans came here, they found not only that, well, the Anglo-Americans, they, they drank that British-style ale, but they drank uh, whiskey and rum and liquor. Well, the German taste was not for that. It was for lager beer, wine, and, of course, schnapps, too, on the side. But the kinds of beverages that were here did not meet the German taste at all. Um, And with regard to wine, I might say, too, Nicholas Longworth, he started brewing a Catawba wine on the banks of the Ohio River, which was somewhat like a German-style Rhine wine that did appeal to people. There's, there's a whole show there, too, of, of all of the <laughs> wine in Cincinnati at that time that it could be talked about of, you know, you talk Mount Adams at one time was just covered in vineyards, and I don't think people even realize that whole side of what Cincinnati was, too. There's, there, there's a lot of stories here that people have um, yeah. forgotten or just not paid attention to for the last however many years. It's Yeah, the, the, I mean, there's a, the whole wine industry is very interesting, especially... Longworth, and he employed German vintners who worked in his vineyards on the banks of the Ohio River. And some of those people, vintners then, they traveled further down river to uh, Missouri to a town called Hermann, Missouri, which is called the Missouri Rhineland, I believe is what it's called, where the, the origins that actually come back to our area. That's so that funny. does relate the taste for wine and, and the lager beer. But um, so that came here really, and it had to do with uh, the German taste for, for lager beer. And it completely uh, overwhelmed uh, the, you know, the other, the British style beers that we'd be doing. And, you know, one thing I comment on that too, like on the craft beer people today you know, people ask, why are they cranking out all these ales? Well, it only takes maybe a week to crank them out, and a lager takes a lot more time right. and cooling. And uh, and it relates, you know, back to the original kinds of beers that were served here. And I do uh, think, and I called my book, too, the Cincinnati's Beer Barons and the Golden Age of Brewing. I do think the Golden Age definitely was before Prohibition, when people were close to the original um, 
beer barons and the kind of beer that they brewed. And it was followed the post-prohibition beers. I think we all know they don't match up all. <laughs> but do you, do you think we're getting to a point where, you know, you could say someday you could say, no, the, the golden age of brewing in Cincinnati is now versus then? I, you know, somebody's asked me that question before because, you <laughs> know, that, that was a good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question to ask. And it brings a lot of thoughts to mind. And because that in, that intervening period of, you know, after prohibition was re- really a low point in the qu- terms of the quality of the beer right. that was being produced. But in terms of the Renaissance, I think definitely we are already at what I would call a, a silver age it really has surpassed its preceding period. And I mean, there's some outstanding beers that are being produced uh, right now that are really, um, you know, I don't, equaling I don't, what, uh, what has been done in the past. When I, when I read these stories that you've put together about these, these beer barons, I, I don't know that as an industry we can ever get that back i don't know if just, i don't know if that's possible in today's age of um business and what it what it means in in the united states especially but um the, the beer alone i think we could get there well you, you know it, it, <laughs> but uh, it, the, the companies i don't know you know and it's hard to say too because you know brewing just like anything is not static it's an evolving thing and tastes do evolve and brewing evolves and there are new tastes and things that are being introduced in, into brewing. Um, so it, it's evolving, but yeah, it's definitely taken, taken a giant leap forward in the kinds of beer. And I think people here in the Cincinnati area have a, a real interest and there's a real demand for it. And maybe it's that, you know, that previous post-prohibition period and into the 50s and 60s, that led to it. You know, that contributed to the poor qualities right. of beer that were uh, available then, helped, uh, you know, get this thing going. And there were pioneers here in our area, too, that helped get things going. I mean, oh, you know, there was the Oldenburg Brewery over in northern Kentucky and Listermans and... Um, by Xavier University and, you know, and, and now Greg Hardman with the, uh, with the Moorline Brewing Company and others. And uh, Sam Adams now brewing here. Sam in- Adams doesn't get nearly enough credit for, um, I know they weren't very loud about their Cincinnati presence for a lot of years there, but they, they, they literally saved the brewing industry in Cincinnati. And anytime I get the chance to, to, tell that story, I guess, in whatever, you know, way I can. I think that it's important to note that they, 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 he came in here into town, bought the Shaneling Brewery when there was probably a lot of other places across the country that probably made more sense to buy. And it was, it goes back to that same idea of family and community and things. There were things about Cincinnati that made more sense to him than, um, the, the most, uh, the most business sense of a place to buy. And um, I will forever have respect for Sam Adams for doing that here in town. Um, yeah, I think Sam Adams came in here really quietly. Um, Making at, a lager too, by the way. <laughs> Boston lager is a lager, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, they came in very quietly and sa- really saved the, the, the Shane Lang Brewery, and, uh, which is really, I mean, we can be thankful we still have that building, as yeah. a matter of fact. Uh, here, but uh, Jim Koch comes with a Cincinnati background and had a uh, grandfather in brewing. And I know when I first tried that beer, um, I thought to my mind, it reminds me in a way of the way the old Pohutapol beer used to taste. I mean, it had a Cincinnati German taste <laughs> to it. And uh, I know so much beer is brewed at the on-site now at the old Shaneling Brewery. And, of course, he done a lot of modern updating to that. But when Jim Koch comes here on different occasions, he comes here, like when, when he opened the tap room 
and um, and also for the downtown Oktoberfest. He's usually here. But, and by the way, he helped sponsor that event too, which is another thing that, that is so great about him. But I've joked with him and I've told him or asked him, I said, say, Jim, you know, um, you have so much beer that's brewed here. Don't you think you'd change the name of the Boston Beer Company to the Cincinnati Beer Company? <laughs> but he said, no, no, we can't do that. He's, but <laughs> he's, he's a very smart business guy. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, um, you know, in talking about, uh, and I do quote him in, um, in my book, he wrote a, um, an autobiography about himself and what he has done with brewing. And it was so valuable. I, and I, I told him, and I wrote that in the book, too. I wish the other beer barons, they would have written That's an autobiography. None of them none of them wrote an autobiography. I had to go dig up interviews and, you know, go back to contemporary accounts. But he did write one. And he, um, he definitely, in my mind, and, and I do write about that in the book, he definitely uh, deserves to be called a beer baron because he fits all of these uh, things about the German work ethic, um, how he gives back to the community, how he supports things here in town. And uh, I'm glad he started that tap room, too, in over the Rhine across the street from his brewery. And uh, it's just a very fine place and excellent beer. And... You know, I, I don't know about other people what they can say about different breweries, but I've never had a beer from Sam Adams I didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say that about some of the breweries <laughs> that uh, have some great beers, but all of them, you know, I can't say that. I look, you know, they're all fine, well and good, but he, they do put out some excellent brews. Do you think that, um, that that he and Sam Adams are the best example in Cincinnati right now of this this old idea of what it means to be a beer baron or operate that type of place? I, I think uh, Jim Coke definitely, he deserves to be called a beer baron. The other person I think is Greg Hardman. I think he definitely deserves to be called a beer baron. He, when you look at his uh, his work ethic, how he's worked over the years, he had a vision and a dream in mind. He supports so many events and sponsors so many things in town uh, to take place, uh, different festival events uh, and functions, uh, and, and you know, helps sponsor the Bach Fest here in town. So he, you know, Greg Hardman, Definitely, he's, he deserves to be called a beer baron. What do you think if you could uh, draw some kind of um, some kind of line between the, uh, the the brewing industry of of then of pre prohibition and now? Like, what do you what do you think we can learn from the way they did things versus the way things are being done now um, as an industry? Like, well, I think, you know, those things about the beer barons, about how they worked with the, the community and how they catered to the, the community connection, worked with the community, supported community, um, you know, and some of these old beer baron families, which is probably unknown, but the descendants continue to support things here in our town, uh, the zoo and... Um, Spring Grove Cemetery, they continue to support. So I think if they continue, the people are coming to brewing, if they continue to support community projects and endeavors and have a real interface and strong connection to the community here at large, that will only contribute to, to their uh, growth and development in the future. Um, the, the book, uh, people can get it. Online is it in stores now around town? Uh, Joseph Beth and I think that's the only bookstore that's still around. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I think I, there's one Barnes and Noble up in Mason too. <laughs> yeah, it, it is at the. Yeah, it's at. Um, yeah, J- Joseph Beth. I think uh, there's a books by Fountain Square. Yeah, and it's also in the Brewery Heritage Gift Shop in the Moorline Malt House. It's also at the Moorline Lager House. 
and at the Hofbrau House in Newport. So it's kind of interesting. On the on my beer baron books, they they're selling. Yet, yeah, they're at bookstores, but they're also at all the breweries. <laughs> so there's, they're in more breweries than there are bookstores. <laughs> there, I think they're, they're in more breweries actually, and and I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> Um, and the book itself, I so the uh, you know the Moreline book and the the Hauk book and the the, um, the Wiedemann book were longer reads. It's um, it's a it's a large story of who these people were. Whereas this one, it's lots of smaller um, stories of each person. It's which, as somebody who has a, a toddler at home, makes my life a whole lot easier <laughs> when I can pick up a book, read a, a part. And, and feel like I'm done with that part and go back to the chaos and then come back to it and pick up another part. And the, it makes reading a whole lot easier in my life. Well, <laughs> it's, you know, it's fantastic well, the way it's laid out. Well, I tried to make it a collective bio, biography of these people. And some of them, you know, like Hudipol, I wanted to have a chance to go in and talk about Hudipol. He's so well-known. And it was great to, to talk about him. And some of these other people, too, are just fascinating people. You know, their experiences, what they went through and... And what they what they built it just it's just a, a wonderful story to read. It's great that you know when I uh, when I first started getting into the history of of brewing in Cincinnati, and I would go and I would do these dives trying to find information. And like you said, there was a lot of information that was just very incomplete, conflicting sources, that kind of stuff. It's it's really great to see sources of good information now that will live on for forever, and that people will be able to reference for. Um, for years and years and years from now that they will be able to tell this story of um, who we who we were who we are and and kind of how that that happened it's 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 nice to see and i i appreciate what you have done for um the city and for the uh the culture that uh that that lives here Oh, so thank, thank you very you. much. Thank um, you very much. For- again, for anybody who uh who is into the historical side of all of this um um Go get the book. It's really, really good. I, I enjoy it a lot. And uh, get the other ones, too. You can still find um, all of those books in, in local stores. And um, they're all really good dives into um, the stories of the beer barons. Don Heinrich told me, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, I'll put links in the show notes for everybody where they can click. And we'll send you right to a spot where you can buy the book and um, learn more about all of this. Um, or just go out and have a beer. <laughs> Buy the book and have a beer and sit and drink the, the beer while you read the book. It's uh, probably the right way to do it. We'll be back next week. Cincy Brewcast, the voice of Cincy Craft. <laughs> <laughs>